Hi, I'm Spencer Ziegler. I'm Serena Halstead. Hi, and I'm Melissa Smith, and welcome to Data Lit Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the third and final part of our grading conversation with author and grading guru, Rick Romelli. In the previous two parts, we have looked at the purpose of grades and how to increase the accuracy of our grades. And we also sort of looked at a new way to define accountability. In the last episode, we left off with Rick sharing why it was important to give students second chances. And so now we begin with asking him, how do teachers avoid getting burned out by the regrading process? I know that some of my teacher friends are going to say, I'm all for redoing, but then I'm always in a cycle of just grading, grading, grading. I'll never get out of it. So what would you say to a teacher like that? Like, I mean, I have a life. I have, you know, I want to have some sort of balance. (laughs) And if I keep giving opportunities to to redo and come back, then I'm always sitting down there with papers grading. So how would you help? Well, I don't know what you guys are doing in North Carolina with 24-hour days, but we invented 36-hour here in Virginia, (laughs) and it's working well. Uh, No, I got to tell you, I wrote an article that answers that question that just came out in April. And the article is relearning and reassessing practical tips. (laughs) I don't know how to get more uh, straight across what it is than that. And what it is, is how do you do redos and retakes so you don't lose your sanity, but also students learn responsibility. Right. How do you do the scoring? How do you do They have to recreate a plan of of thoughtful relearning. I'm not gonna keep weighing the cow, hoping for a different weight each time. But I gotta tell you, I have so many students who wanna do the redo the first marking period, then they realize all the consequences and the things that they have to do, and they turn to each other. And this is like teacher gold, they give testimony. It's just easier if you do well the first time around. Don't have to do redo. Like, okay, that's good. (laughs) But remember, that kids crave success and confidence. They don't want to always forever be behind or be the dead weight in a small group that doesn't do their work in preparation for the small group's task. So I got to tell you, work off that. Understand what motivation is. And one of the biggest things, I cannot emphasize enough, is when teachers discover the world of executive function. That's your air traffic control right behind your forehead. So it's the last thing to come online. It doesn't usually come online for most humans until mid-20s or so. So we've got kids who are very intermittent sporadic with getting their time management together. And if their heart's not in it, doing it nonetheless. There's some adults who struggle with that, by the way, <laughs> at any rate. Who won't call names. But adults are better, they're more mature, they can handle it. In fact, a lot of people are like, oh, instead of knocking my head against the cinder block wall of my classroom all these years, I could have been doing the executive function skills. Yeah. So, you know, I do training on that. So you don't have to use me, you can use somebody else. But I can send you great books on that at some point. But if you just type in executive function, you'll get lots of TED Talks and lots of books on it. But it's usually the, a godsend for high school and middle school teachers in particular who feel like they're being driven nuts by the kids who seem irresponsible. And almost every single irresponsible act can be traced back to a lack of executive function. And wow. when you overtly teach those skills, those mishaps, those things that drive us insane start disappearing. It's really, really quite nice. But that's something, again, where you have to improve your skill set and those things. So practical things are in that article. And rather than, you know, I just say, look, it's all outlined there far more coherently than I am today. But if you want to read the article, that would give you a good running start. Yeah, we'll drop that in the, the show notes so people can access there. Yeah, yeah that yeah, would be great. Retests. I think there's this idea to think of retests like that's not learning. It's like fake learning when 
I was reading there's educational leadership had this great article grading to encourage relearning that point out that this is actually how the brain works. Like we were talking about those neural pathways and you reinforce neural pathways by moving stuff from working memory to long-term memory back and forth. So the act of quizzing multiple times is actually, no, that's how the brain works, which I think is. You know, to Spencer, um, education leadership, November, 2011, uh, I did an article in there called Redos and Retakes Done Right. Uh, if you want, if you still have a copy of that magazine, it's, of course, it's 10 years old now. Um, and then don't forget, every single cognitive scientist, every assessment grading expert, nobody disagrees on redos and retakes. Wait for it, wait for it, for full credit mm-hmm. after the relearning. So <laughs> if you were doing something other than that, you are doing something that is not informed by research, anecdotal evidence, and goes against what some of the best minds in the whole planet for decades have recommended. So now you have to decide, well, do you know better than all these other people who have been doing the deeper dive all this time, (laughs) and practitioners and researchers, or could you just not be dismissive? Right now you might be hesitant or skeptical. That's great. That's being an intelligent consumer. What, Like, for example, what I'm not saying is just as important as what I am saying. So I'm hoping that people are reading between lines, um, I want students to know that. What is the author not saying is just as important as the author is saying, that kind of thing. Look at negative space, not just positive space in, in graphics. You know, all of that stuff is really important. But we're all in 100% agreement. Nobody's, you know, shorting that at all. In the world of cognitive science, as you just mentioned, and in assessment and grading. So how is it so prevalent that people go, oh, no, I got to prepare you for the working world. I need to remind you, you don't recreate and demand post-certification, post-licensure, full adult maturity performance, on-time, high-quality delivery, when you're pre-certification, and again, you're morphing and a bit insecure as a teenager, that will never even go into that field. That's abuse. That's not teaching. It's not saying, I have to recreate post-high school performances, post-college performances in high school, middle school, elementary. That's not what's going to prepare. I, I wrote another article on the idea that you don't have to recreate the exact policies and practices a level above you in this lower level. Yeah. If it's not development appropriate, is the only way to prepare them. We don't give car keys to a toddler because one day she'll drive. <laughs> we do what is developmentally appropriate here and now. Right. And the two most preparatory things is really learning it and personal maturity. We mentioned that before. Yeah. So if the kid can learn it to a higher level, even if they don't do redos in a level above, whatever grade level you have, as they do that, they will still be better fortified for whatever happens. They'll have the agility, the competence to succeed rather than, well, you don't have to learn this. That's going to prepare you. No, it's not. It's a void. It's an abyss. And you've left him or her or them less than they were and certainly less fortified. So, Rick, as we wrap up... You know, we're in this, I'm not even sure. I, I have the question as in a post-pandemic, but at this point, that was after, <laughs> yeah, that's I don't even know where we are with the pandemic. We're when, we're, when we're in the post-pandemic, <laughs> we're in a different space now than we were. Yeah. What, do you, what would you, what do teachers consider with regards to grading? I know where there's a lot of talk about going back to normal mm-hmm. and, 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 and going back to pre-pandemic, but I don't, I, I don't know. I think this is a wonderful space for us to sort of stop and reconsider where we were and where we want to go and what we can do differently. So as we move there, what should teachers consider with regards to grading? Well, I alluded to it earlier. 
the intersections between all the elements students are navigating and their teachers are navigating. Right. Mm -hmm. The homelessness, drug abuse, economic downturn, loss of normalcy, loneliness. The more time teens and preteens, young adolescents spend online, uh, the more isolated and depressed they can get. There's a lot of research on that. And if we do more hybrid and remote, we're going to have to be very mindful. So the mindfulness that you assess and grade in that context. Right. And the phrase that really seems to help is compassion before curriculum, grace before accountability. And that means that instead of a teacher tantrum or a scolding, you didn't do the homework, you didn't do the assignments, or you're not caring enough, it should be, you're having a tough time, how can I help? Very different lens. And that we grant that forgiveness to ourselves. Right. For example, a lot of teachers might be very concerned that we're gonna go back to hybrid or remote. And what happened last year is a whole bunch of teachers made the mistake of thinking that, well, they'll just take whatever they do in the classroom and yeah. squish it down and pop it right through the camera lens. And it'll come out on the other side, it'll be just as effective. And when it wasn't, oh, it's easy for me to blame the child. Or my hands are tied, there's nothing else I can do as a teacher. And I'm calling buffalo bagels on that, <laughs> my polite Virginia term. Say we can do better. A lot of teachers, when they're in the classroom, are overly dependent on personality, physical presence, and the trappings of the classroom. So what it's forced a lot of teachers to do, and I highly recommend this, is that you go back and you restudy, what do I know about seven-year-old brains? Yeah. What do I know about 17-year-old brains and how they best learn? I go back to my pedagogical roots, the science and craft of teaching, rather than relying on pure personality or, hey, give me a high five. And that was the way I did it, uh, relationships. No, there's something more here. How about when um, I get their interest by just standing next to them? So now they're really nervous and they're, they're focused on their paper. They were talking earlier. Well, how do I get their interest based on what I know about the brain and how it becomes interested in something rather than just being dependent on me and my roving around the room? I'm going to watch you. Your mom's on speed dial. You better shape up, which is coercion and not really what we're about. So I think that's really going to help. The other thing that opens up for a lot of teachers, if they weren't there before, by golly, we have to remember it, especially mid-pandemic or post, <laughs> is this idea that more and more of the burden of students maintaining attention and monitoring their own learning is on students' shoulders. And so we want to really teach student-led conferences a lot more, and we want to teach descriptive feedback techniques that teachers can use but help teachers see that if they're the bottleneck, they really need to teach students to do their own descriptive feedback to themselves, to one another, wait, there's more, and get those techniques out to uh, Mima, grandma, grandpa, uh, aunts, uncles, and parents who are in the household who can do descriptive feedback instead of overly assist, if you get my drift on that as you move through it. I would hope that we could put those skills and techniques in teachers' hands and they could help the students self-monitor. Just a reminder, meta-analyses, John Hattie, Bob Marzano in the right. top three, student self-evaluation, self-monitoring every time as the most indicative. So can a student realize this is the exemplar, the evaluative criteria, here's my effort, patches, here's how it differs, now, in case anybody's interested, I did two videos on that on, we put on YouTube last year. And if you want to put that in the show notes, you know, with the URLs, that's great. And I would just say this, you're allowed to be imperfect. Yeah. You really are. 
Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, what was that phrase? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure I get it right. Um, remember Arthur Ashe, civil rights activist, tennis champion, died of HIV AIDS. And he had this phrase, um, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that's so cool because that means I could do a little bits of these things in the microcosm of my class. There are a lot of teachers who go, well, I can't do all of that, so I'm gonna do none of it. No, we need to give ourselves permission to be imperfect for like three years, to be limping along, trying our very best, and to invite students to be collaborative with us. You know, research says this, I don't know how to do it. Can you guys join me in helping me figure that out? Right. Not we do it to them, but we do it with them. Um, and that always ends up in a much more constructive, healthier year for students. And when we're really struggling ourselves, that's gonna be gold as well. We, we can do that. So I'm hoping they would do that. And I would just really appreciate their dedication and, and courage of conviction, you know, to, to do right by the kids who are, are struggling just as much as they are. I think so. So thank you, Rick. I think that's all of our questions for today. So we are so grateful to Rick Wormley for sharing all these nuggets of wisdom with us. And I have heard him say uh, grades are first and foremost communication and that they are information and nothing more. The minute we make them something more, we corrupt their constructive use. So as teachers begin this school year and consider ways to better communicate with their students, we hope that they have heard something that they can incorporate into their practice. What is one of your takeaways from this series? So Melissa, we had so much interesting conversation about grading. And so you asked about what is our takeaway when it comes to grading. And I'm, my takeaway is this. Grading, when it's done right, it should communicate information about students' achievement. And another thing that I, I like in our conversation that we have is that teachers need to establish a grading plan. And that grading plan could be right across the grade level, or it could be a school-wide policy, which would be good to have a school-wide policy on what are we grading. To have some consistency, that is key when it comes to grading students' work. And it's critical that, you know, leaders of the school have that conversation like, what are we putting in the gradebook? What are we going to be um, penalizing? What are we going to be accepting? Right. So that consistency, I think it is important. And at the end of the day, grading should reflect how students are achieving in school. Yeah. And that, you know, I feel like that leads into my takeaway that um, there are certain things that should be non-negotiable should focus on, you know, the, the, the academic, academic grade should focus on the academics, not necessarily these external behaviors, some of those kind of things. It should be transparent, all those pieces. But after that, one of the things that stood out to me is that there's a certain amount of messiness in figuring out what those some of these other grading policies and practices might be, and that this is a feature, not necessarily a flaw. Once you get beyond those cut and dry things, there's a need to have people sit down at a table and figure out together what is right based on this context, based on this community, based on our values. And that might vary if you're in a pandemic or if you're not, or if you're in one community or another, or if you have a set of values that are tied to your school. And those conversations where you're building shared understanding and shared commitment, that those are essential. And just because it's not crystal clear that it should be this, that those 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 meetings, that messiness, that that's important. And have those conversations with your staff to build that shared understanding, with your students so they understand what grades are meant to communicate, like 
Yeah, and with your parents as well, so exactly. that they know mm. when those <laughs> yeah. things come across, yes. they're clear what it means based on that school, based right. on that context. Right. So that's what stood out to me when he was talking about some of those complicated conversations, that this isn't a bad thing that we should shy away from, but we should embrace that. I'm getting a Fifty Shades of Messiness. So for me, it was that notion of assessments is work that is done with mm. and not to students. And yeah. if you remember when we had our assessment, um, what's the purpose of assessments episode, yep. and we talked about that whole definition of assessment mm -hmm. to sit down with, mm -hmm. and I think uh, Rick brought that up again about this thing it's done with students. Um, and there was a period where we sort of redefine what does student success look like? And I, you know, I've been pondering that for a while because I'm thinking, what does student success look like for students, look like for my own child? Mm -hmm. And and you know, as most my role as a teacher in the classroom, like is it for the, the students to learn? And what would that look like? Is it when every child has a hundred? Right. Or, you know, I've been trying to sort of grapple with I guess some of that messiness, like what does that look like? What does student success look like? And how should we communicate that with, with, with ourselves, yeah. with our students, with our parents? So like that's one of the things, like just that whole notion of it's done with, but it's so messy. <laughs> yeah. I think especially as our, our district and I think our world starts to focus more on social emotional learning mm -hmm. and we start to ask questions about like, okay, but how do we provide feedback and how do we communicate some of these pieces there? that pushes us into asking some of those questions that also apply to the academic standards. Not, none of this is as cut and dry as it initially right. appears. Mm -hmm. um, and that's complicated and tricky and somewhat fascinating to dive into, I think. I remember seeing a topic on grading and it says, grade do tell a story. It does. Mm -hmm. And the story has to be the same story right throughout, right? Teachers are saying one story about the grade but does the student in the class have that same story about the grade? Can the student communicate what that grade means to their parents, mm -hmm. right? So parent might say, oh, well, you got a 80 on this test. Tell me about that. Can the student communicate to the parent what does that 80 mean? Or is it that the parent will have to go seek out the teacher to figure out what this 80% means, right? So the grades do tell a story, and if teachers have one story about the grade, the student is supposed to be able to communicate that same story about what the grade means. But think about those times when, so I like that grading tells a story, and I think about myself as a child because my grades told me a story about who I was as a person because I internalized my grades. So yeah. when I didn't do well, yeah. the story I told myself is that yeah. I'm not a good person, I'm mm -hmm. not a good learner. So I like that whole, it should tell a story, and it should be, it's important that we are clear as educators and as students that the story it's telling is the same story. Because mm -hmm. I think if you leave it up to mystery, everybody's yeah. sort of walking away telling their own story. I like that. I think we run into issues when we think of grading as feedback. And if instead we think of it as grades as a story, that might push us into being a little bit clearer of, you know, is what I'm saying being heard by the other right. party, the students, the, the, the peers, the, um, the parents, those. So I like that. Thank you.
So I think that brings us to the end of this this mini grading series. But if you have any thoughts on grading, anything that you want to us to talk about a little bit further, you can let us know through www.wcpss.net slash data lit. There you can give us questions, you can give us comments, you can see further notes and resources on these episodes. Because next we're going to dive into data literacy. I'm, I'm excited for that series. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to you with that one next show. Thank you to Cary High School's Logan Foster, the student there. He provided the theme music for the series. And thank you also to Digital Learning Coordinator Chris Zirkel for the production assistance. All right, and we'll catch you next time when we talk about data literacy. Thank you, Bye. Bye.